simply because we never left. This is the Parlaying All Blue. I am your host, Mark Dawson. Welcome to season two. Thank you for sticking with us. Now, to get right into it, we're kicking off this season with John Moyer, who is the, who is the Senior Director, Policy Legislative Affairs and Civic Engagement with the Urban League of Greater Atlanta. Now, I want to point you to the National Urban League's website, nul.org, and you will see there a report on the state of Black America. Go and look at it. Make sure you're informed. Download it. Study it. Take it in for yourself. It's fact-based. It's data-based. statistic-based. Go and look at it. Now, we're kicking off this season with this because we have the midterms ahead of us, just 40 days away. But before I go any further or to add some context around why we're doing this, because as I go back to 2016, one of the things that still gets me riled up is the whole idea that there's no difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton or that I don't care one way or another. I'm, I just don't feel good about it. Damn it, you don't need to feel good or bad about voting. You just need to vote. Understand that what was on the line then were three, three Supreme Court seats, the not passing of the George Floyd Policing Act, the January 6th insurrection, Charlottesville, and the, and the sort of many sides response, kids in cages, the onslaught of restricting voting measures that have passed in 30-something states, women's reproductive rights, all of that was on the line. So yeah, it is a big difference and it matters. We have the midterms coming. So what's at stake? Do you believe everyone should have clean and reliable drinking water? Do you like student loan forgiveness? What about, do you think that the 1619 project should be a part of school curriculums or is it a book that should be banned? Do you like the sound of Senator Warnock or the sound of Senator Walker? Do you like the appointment of Supreme Court justices like Judge Justice Katanji Brown Jackson? Do you like that or you want something different? All of that is on the line. And that's what we're going to be talking about and setting the stage this week on the Parlay in All Blue. Come back next week and we're going to do some more on the midterms. And yes, we're going to keep doing it until we get it because it's so important. But again, thank you so much. I don't want to get ahead of the conversation. Stay tuned for John Moyer on this episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you. John Moyer, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you, sir? Good, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. Listen, this is my favorite time of year weather-wise, and uh, I got a chance to see my Jackson State Tigers and Grambling this weekend, and we got a big win, and <laughs> got to see my my youngest son to make sure that he's eating and and minding his uh, his academics because you know college can be 
a fun place, but you know, it's a portal. I try to tell them it's a portal. Don't get stuck here. You got to go right. through the portal. That's so right. anyway, so this is a a good time. Now I will tell you, there is something that, and, and we'll kind of get through this in in our discussion. Is last year? So this is our first episode of the season. Wow! And we kicked off last year with Helen Butler, and we had a great season from there. Now she's great. No pressure. No, no, no not at all, Mark. You know, not at all. Helen Butler. You know, no, not zero. I know, I know, I know. But, 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 in all seriousness, and I'm glad you're on, and thank you again because I want to set the stage when our audience hears this recording, we will be 40 days out from the midterms. And that is a, to say that these elections are the election of a lifetime, I think I want to just change it that voting all, every time you have a chance to vote, your life is really on the line. And I I mean that, but we are, we are 40 days away. And what I want to do is to have a discussion with you about the Urban League's State of Black America report to help put things in context and to for our audience to give a guide of just sort of where we stand and how the report was put together and all of those things. Is that fair? It's more than fair. All right. So, John, what is the State of Black America report? First off, what is it? Yeah, and let me first of all, I just want to sincerely say, you know, thanks, Mark, really for, for for having me on today. You know, you know, we are at a critical time in this republic, in this democracy, and you know, everybody says that you know, every election is is election of a lifetime. You know, I remember you know President Clinton back in '92. I'm dating myself. You know, this was the election of a of a lifetime, or '08 when Obama ran for president. But I can truly say, after the last four years, this is just not about our the country. It's about our republic. It's about the future of democracy in the world as we know it. The good news is that African-Americans have played from the beginning of this republic and are playing a pivotal role right now. Mm-hmm. In, in some ways, you know, we are the linchpin to the republic. Yeah. Really. But uh, against that backdrop, so just to share with you and your listening audience very quickly. So Vernon Jordan who was the late president of the of the of the, of the National Urban League, who passed away either last year or the year before last, and mm-hmm. President Clinton, and on and on and on, a, you know, a stellar person in his own right, all attended the State of the Union. It's the annual message that the president gives every year to the United States Congress, House and Senate. And so this year was 1976, and Vernon Jordan is sitting in the audience, and he's in D.C., as the story is told. And uh, President Ford, at the time, According to Vernon, there was no mention of urban issues or things that really mattered to our community at the time. So he said, you know what, we're going to go on our own and we're going to do a state, prepare a state of black America. And he did. And uh, for the last next almost 50 years, it's, uh, it's, it's been released annually uh, in our nation's capital, really talking about the state of black America. Where are we nationally? How are we doing economically and socially and academically? And so, but this year was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Morial said, look here, you know, uh, Georgia is really at the center of the world right now. And if you think about it, for a whole host of reasons, and we don't have enough time to get into it. And he came to Georgia for the first time. He said, we got to get it out of D.C. and let's bring it to, to Atlanta. And he did. He did that. And listen, it, it demonstrated what we already know. That have we made ardent strides? 
Sure. Since uh, 1776 and two, and since 1865 and since the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, you bet we have. Right. But against that backdrop, there's still some serious structural problems that African-Americans are facing in this country. But we said as an organization, Nancy Johnson is our fearless leader here at the Urban League. At the, Absolutely. At, I'm, you know, my fearless leader. And uh, more importantly, a, a wonderful leader, an excellent leader. And Nancy said, you know, John, what if we do a state of black Georgia to do a deeper dive, to do a deeper uh, a look at what's going on, not only nationally, but what's going on here in Georgia? And we, we began that work. And it's been an eye opener, to say the least. And, and so with that, well, there's a couple of things I just want to follow up on is when you talked about black Americans being the linchpin of the republic, that's a central thesis of uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project, and there's a lot of pushback against that. But I would say that Black Americans have really tested what the country says it's about in the Constitution. If everybody can vote, then, you know, we have to go out and say that everyone can vote. If everyone has the right to pursue a right to happiness, like liberty right. pursuit of happiness, then we want to be able to educate ourselves properly. It's over and over we have tested democracy, and and uh, we'll get into to more uh, of that later. Now, just one question. Who reads, who's the intended audience of the State of Black America report? What do you, what's the intent behind it? The intent, quite frankly, I think, from my perspective, and I'm sure Mark Morial would have a different perspective as our national leader, but for me here, here on the ground, I would say for policymakers. Okay. I mean, you know, if you think about it, really, it's all been public policy. That that's really uh, not all of it, but a majority of it has been the, the implementation of public policy that ha- has really made our lives better. You know, you know, certainly beginning with the Emancipation Proclamation. You know, back in 1865. You know, that that that's a form of, of public policy. The the amendments to the United States Constitution guaranteeing us, you know, you know, uh, citizenship. You know, the right to vote for men and women. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education. The fight at the Supreme Court in 1954. And finally, you know, the big fight. Uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1965 that President Johnson signed, you know, major pieces of public policy that has progressively changed the lives, lives of black folks. So for us, for me, it's two pronged. It's policy, public policymakers, whether it's in the House, in Washington and in the Congress or locally here in Georgia, you know, state officials take a look at where are we? And then also our corporate leaders. You can't separate the two. No, you it's can't. So- they drive, you know, the business of America is business. That's what Calvin Coolidge said back in the 20, the late uh, president of the United States. And so it's also the business community has to understand that if we're going to keep America strong and, and, and a leader of the world, that uh, these issues are important. And not, not, not only for just a, if nothing else, but just for selfish reasons in terms of our, our, our own survival. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for for that. So one of the things that that stood out to me when I saw the report was the subtitle for this year was Under Siege, The Plot to Destroy Democracy. That's a strong subtitle. And when I saw it now, for me, as somebody who spends a lot of time in in this um, arena uh, because Nancy Johnson is my leader too, uh, <laughs> is while the, the the title in some ways may be shocking or it can seem like rhetoric or what have you, I don't know if the title is far off at all. 
what's your take on the the title and and, and is there a plot to destroy democracy? You know, it, it's almost like you know, you know, with President Biden, without me getting in a, a partisan anyway, you know, President Biden made some pretty serious statements last week about uh, organizations and people, and he sort of just called them out. And as my wife would say, you know, John, you have sometimes you just have to call a thing a thing. Yeah, you know, we don't have the luxury right now of time of sugarcoating anything. And so it's democ- it is democracy under CJ. When you take a look here, that in my estimation, for me personally, I, I, I want to get ahead of anybody, that when you take a look at what occurred in 2020, no question about that. I mean, I mean you're talking about nullifying the votes of millions, of millions of people, whether it was here in Georgia or in Michigan or in Philadelphia, where there are large concentrations of African-Americans, to undermine uh, of, of, of this election. And not only that, you know, an orchestrated uh, um, effort to, you know, to to to, to do, you know, certainly illegal things, and, and you know, we, you know, it's uh, you know, we don't have enough time for that, but but all of us know what those are. The January sixth commission has laid it out. Uh, uh, Mueller, uh, the investigation, although nobody talks about him, uh, certainly had laid that out maybe t- t- two years before. I mean, and it's laid out even now when you take a look at what's going on here now. It's an orchestrated effort, as far as I'm concerned, and. The danger, Mark, it's not that. It's not that. Here's a danger. It's not what people are doing because people are going to do what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. It's the silence that concerns me. It's, the, it's, it's it's people like you and me and people who go to work every day and or, or the, the sophisticated people like cocktail parties who knows who's know what's really going on. And for the, either, either it's it's either fear or it's either they're, you know, they're complicit in it. But we have to call it out. You know, and we don't have the luxury of time. It is a it is a threat to our democracy, and democracy right now, as far as I'm concerned, is under siege. Yeah, and and so to to make it plain, let's dig in uh, a little bit on the sort of um, we know we had the presidential election. The last last federal election was in November of 2020, and Joe Biden wins the popular vote and the electoral college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then maybe 60 days later, I don't have a calendar in front of me. We have the runoffs here in Georgia, and Georgia sends its first black senator to the United States. And then we also had the runoff that sent John Ossoff to the Senate. And so the first, we had the first, Jew, the first Jewish American. Uh, you know, understand, you know, the, the power yes. of that. Yes. These two men. Yeah. From yeah. the South. From the South. Oh, Jesus. Uh, a Jewish man and a black man win the Senate in Georgia. That's that's a, that's a, that's a huge deal. That's a huge it deal. A huge and for what, by all purposes, uh, we've had rhetorically, there was a lot of pushback from the Trump campaign. I know that the Urban League is nonpartisan, but that's the organization that began to push back on it and push back on it loudly. The sitting president at that time, questioned the votes, threw out a lot of sort of dog whistles and calling out Atlanta and Detroit and Philadelphia. Those are sort of euphemisms for black America, what have you. And we have the the rhetoric. And then we'll start with the first sort of chink in the armor was the January 6th attack. First of all, Forget the policy and those things. What did you 
as someone who's been involved in politics and is in the work of, of understanding legislation and those things and just really has a good grasp of the country's history, when you saw that just viscerally, what, what was your reaction? I was shocked. I, I literally, literally, somebody, somebody might disagree with me. I literally couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. I literally could not believe it. And I, I just want you to think about I just want you to put this in perspective, that this country has been around since over 200 years. This In our life, maybe not my life, my grandson's lifetime, but in this century, we will s- celebrate 250 years. And in the year 2076, it'll be 250 years, 300 years old, I should say. Two, 300 years old. We're coming up on our 250th in a, in a couple of years. And in spite of all the stuff that we've been through, the good, the bad, and a lot of ugly, in the midst of a civil war, you never saw what happened there. Think what you think about what happened there. People, people stormed the storm the the floor of the United States Senate. They tried to break into the House of Representatives when they were uh, when they were, you know, you know, certifying the you know certifying the election. Police officers died. There were Confederate flags going through the United States Capitol. They desecrated monuments to, to people. They don't talk about the people that we know. People died. Nazi flags. Think about that. And I think for all of us who, listen, there's no place that's perfect. If yep. all of it, if all of its imperfections, this is still my country and I love my country. Right. All of us were offended. Many people were offended by that. And I just sit here and I said, my God, you know, what's what's coming after this? Where are we now? It changed everything. It was a shift. Yeah, it was a big shift. And I, I think to to sort of keep going down that road, one of the first things that I saw that I would say is a threat to democracy is the lack of holding people accountable. And I'm talking about that from both parties. We know we have the January 6th commission, but from both parties, there is right now the January 6th hearings and committee investigating led by Benny Thompson, the congressman from Mississippi, but we've had the the Speaker of, of the House, uh, not the Speaker of the House, the, the Republican minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, is like, don't participate. So you have only two Republicans participating. So just that lack of accountability seems to be the sort of first step in, 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 in not holding, in, in destroying democracy. The other thing that sort of followed shortly after that was a slew of laws in terms of voting here in Georgia. And I think that's 30 something states at this point. Is there any way that any of that can be reversed? And I'm not talking about January 6th. That's done. The, and, and the hearings are happening, but in terms of the voting laws that were implemented, the restricted voting laws that were implemented, can any of that be reversed uh, legislatively? Yeah, it, it, it says it, it, in 1789, the Constitution of the United States was ratified. And the preamble of the United States Constitution reads, we the people, a government of the people and for the people and by the people. And that might sound corny to anybody else, right. but in the end, it comes to the people. Yeah. That's the bottom line. And so it's about, you know, listen, look, let me just step back and say this. I worked in New York in 
during 9-11. I looked at the buildings. I was in uh, in Queens, in New York City, looking at the buildings fall in 9-11. I saw them fall, each tower come down. And I thought to myself that day that this country, that was real a real threat to democracy externally. I could never have believed, and it seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, that we were more aggressive about those terrorists who knocked down, we went We went after those guys, and, and a war took place as a result. A war. Absolutely, yeah. A war to protect this country. And I never thought in my lifetime that I would see what I witnessed on January 6th. But not just that, the lack of outrage to, 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 to prosecute people who desecrated all of us. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's outrageous. But going back to what you were just saying, uh, talking about that, Listen let, me say, listen, let me say something to you. The election of 1960 with John Kennedy, as far as I'm concerned, was decided by African-Americans. Yep. Okay, straight up. Yeah. Well, you know, it, you know, Lyndon Johnson could not have won 64 or 68 without African-Americans. That's right. Jimmy Carter could not have won 1976 without African-Americans. Bill Clinton couldn't have come back in 92 and 96. And they saved him in 1996 during that impeachment without African-Americans which set the stage for, for Barack Obama in, in 08 and, and, and 12. We have the numbers. I'm going to say it again. We have the numbers. The only reason why the other guy won in 2017 was because we didn't come out. Take a look at those states that Obama had won in terms of the Electoral College. Had we just come out in North Carolina, 20 electoral votes. Had we just come out, had we just come out in, in, in Massachusetts, I mean, in uh, not Massachusetts, in Michigan, we have the numbers. So it's, it's not it's nothing magical about that. We have the numbers now. So you know whether it's and I, and, and I tell people all the time, you know, it's not the it's not the big stuff. I mean, that's important, but it's the little stuff. It's the county commissioners. Yeah. It's the it's 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 the dog catcher. It's the you know it's the secretary of state. It's the school boards. That's the, it's the local, you know, I think Tip O'Neill said, the former Speaker of the House from from Boston, you know, all politics is local. It is. It is. All politics is local. And uh, a couple a couple of things there I want to want to drill on. I, I'm glad you 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 said that. First, let's let's go to the uh, to the numbers, because I, I you're right. You mentioned I, I, you mentioned Michigan, particularly Wayne County, where Detroit is. But we also had the same thing in Milwaukee with uh, low turnout and uh, in Philadelphia. You may have mentioned Philly, but that really was a, a, a game changer. One of the things though, about the numbers is is so much happened in 2020. And I'm not even talking about the vicious cycles of police brutality and, and the death of George Floyd. I'm not even talking about that right now. I'm just focused just strictly on the, the voting and what you talk about, the numbers so we had a census that was conducted as well. What's the outcome of the the census? And I'm not talking about specifically, but did we have a good census? I don't think. Listen, listen. I don't think so. I, I mean, I mean, you know, if if you know, if you recall, uh, there's a guy by the name of DeJoy, if I'm correct. Yes, and he's a postmaster general right now, I and know. this is the guy that took out the sorting machines. Yeah, you remember that. Yeah, oh, I do. Yeah, yeah. We at the Urban League, we had to sue the Trump administration because they had stopped the count. I had a, a, almost six a month or six weeks ahead of time here in Georgia. I mean, th- you know, that affects everything. So if that was just here in Georgia, 
do we really did we really get a real account of who we are? And understand something, it has its consequences. Congressional lines were drawn. I live uh, here in Gwinnett County, and uh, uh, my two members of Congress were paired together. Both of them were paired. I mean, that's, and I'll leave it at that, that's real. So congressional seats were lost based on those numbers, yeah. based on the count. You know, uh, you know. listen, hey, so where are we? I mean, I, you know, listen, hey, I, you know, who am I to, to question the United States government? But, you know, do we have it? Did, did we really receive an accurate count? It's up to others to decide that. Yeah. So we, we had certainly the, the funny business that was happening at the post office, but we also had the what I would call rhetorical intimidation of saying we're going to put a citizenship. The Trump administration was wanting to put a citizenship question on the census, which had never been done before. And that's not the purpose of the census, because you want to know where resources need to be allocated. And I believe that suppressed a number of people, particularly a number of immigrants from participating as well. And, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, the redistricting and the, and the drawing of lines. One of the things that's always baffles me is that in Greensboro, where North Carolina A&T, the black, historically black college in, 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 in Greensboro, that campus is split into two congressional districts. Somebody's drawn a line in the middle of North Carolina A&T. And, and first off, that in and of itself seems undemocratic to me, but to the point about participation, there's consequences when we don't show up for, for elections because it's local where those lines are drawn. This local, like you talked about, county commissioners, who's going to give lo- loans to black farmers. And you mentioned school boards. The school boards seem to be one of the hotbeds of political activity with this anti-CRT rhetoric or what have you. So the voting around local is super important. So to step back from that, because I think there's there's some more I want to want to get to on that that part of local. What is your role with the Urban League of Greater Atlanta? What's your role? I am senior senior director for policy, legislative affairs, and civic engagement, which means my job is to make sure that uh, policies are certainly uh, produced that, that uh, favorably for the communities we serve. I interface with elected officials, and I'm now in charge of the Center for Social Justice and Civic Engagement. And uh, that's to, to really focus on civic engagement. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I met with a group of people last week and, and not trying to call anybody. Out, I just walked around the room and I said, uh, you know, and these are pretty smart, you know, college educated people. I said, who's your member of Congress? I said, who's your state senator? Who's your county commissioner? Yeah. They couldn't tell me. And then some of them were embarrassed, but it wasn't meant to embarrass them. I'm, I'm, I'm saying if you guys don't understand that and you guys are taxpayers, then what about the other folks who, who, who are really just, you know, not really that involved? So for me, it's about civic engagement. We have to get our people to understand. And and we do. But more of that, you, it, we don't have the time now to be passive because other people aren't being passive. Mm-mm. They're not. They're, they're, you know, they have their agenda, whatever it is, and they're executing it. They are. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in order for us to be able to counter that, we have to know what is going on. You have to show up at your school board meeting. I know you're tired. I, listen, I, together we raised five kids, my wife and I. But I had to go to school board meetings. I had to vote. 
Right. I have, you know, you know, who's going to sweep the streets? Who's going to clean the park? I mean, stuff that you don't think about. Who's going to change the sun? Who's going to change the, the street light? I mean, that those are actually decisions made every day by somebody somewhere. And so just to go back real quick, because you mentioned something. I remember I used to ask, you know, when I was much younger during first redistricting, I remember like, and I would ask, and nobody would answer this question for me. I would like, who's actually in a room? I mean, who's in the room with the map and the pencil and the ruler drawing these lines? No one will ever ask you that, Mark. I, I, I double dog dare you or you're listening to your audience right me. I mean, literally, can you, is it Joe Adams? Is it Mike James? Is, is it you know, Willie Johnson? Who, I mean, who actually sits down? Does it say, oh, John, it's computerized and all this other kind of, no, 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 no. At the end of the day, who? Yep. And nobody's going to tell you that. It's actually a, a group of people that sit in a room with maps. Yep. And they draw the lines. Yeah. I mean, and that's the reason why even last year I went to these redistricting hearings, although I felt as if some of it was already done. It was a done deal, but you had to go anyway yeah. and raise your voice because this stuff is for real. No, it really is. And, and you really bring up a, a good point because there are actual people making decisions. It, it, it's really it's not it's not computer automated and there's no sort of angelic group that comes down from the heavens and draws the draws the maps that are going to draw them fairly. There are no. people drawing them who, through the power of the vote, are now drawing those lines, not fairly in my estimation, but in their overwhelming best interests. And those things have 10 years implications. Uh, next time we'll have a census is, 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 is 10 years. And so it's all of those things. It's you mentioned school boards, what have you, but it, it mentions which it, it's going to affect which neighborhoods can and will be zoned for toxic waste recycling. That was, listen, down down to we, we during the state of black Georgia. And I don't want to get ahead of myself. We had a chance to travel all over the state. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in a meeting in Augusta and somebody said to me that for the entire city of Augusta, there's only eight ambulances. I'm not making this up to you. Can you imagine that? An entire city of Augusta. Eight ambulances for the entire city. So God forbid if something happens to you. But at the end of the day, Mark, somebody's making that decision. That's a policy decision. I mean, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't believe that. So what do you mean? He said there's eight ambulances for the entire city of Augusta. Yeah. For a city, eight. Yeah. So if you have a stroke or a heart attack or something, hey, listen, good luck and God bless. Yeah, no, that's that's very real. And it, and one of the things that was obvious here in Georgia during the, the pandemic, and it's, it, it just showed in Georgia, but it, Georgia was just an anecdote to what was happening across the country, is that the healthcare system, we saw the effects of rural hospitals that it closed over the years. That's a decision making. The local decision by the past two governors to not take the Obamacare Medicaid expansion, that's a local decision that has ramifications on where which hospitals can stay open. We had last week here, what was it? The the Wellstar closed. We had had a trauma hospital closed here in Atlanta. Like in an area that you and I know is being heavily gentrified, is is well populated and all of those things, but it's a hospital that's closed and we're still not out of the the pandemic yet. I, I listen, I am as guilty as a, a lot of people. I can't say as guilty as everybody. I am as guilty of being pretty relaxed these days and not masking the way I should or what have you. But we're still in a pandemic and we're closing 
hospitals that uh, so there's real and, implications. And, and in the end, you, know, you, know, you know, I mean, people can say whatever they want to say, you know, and I've been involved not in Georgia. I've been involved with hospital hospital closing, uh, certainly in my career. These are in addition to business decisions. These are also political decisions. You know, you, you cannot open a hospital without public policy. You can't just willy-nilly say, I'm going to open a, a hospital. So, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, some folks at the state came, you know, with some money to, to, to help Brady. But at the end of the day, what are we talking about? I mean, so for a lack of not accepting, I mean, I think either it's $500 million a year, whatever it is, that could save rural hospitals because of, because of some sort of uh, philosophy. A philosophy. I mean, I, I mean, the money is there, literally, literally there. And so yeah. because of some political philosophy, where are these people supposed to go? Yep. Literally. Yeah, no, I mean, it, yeah, it, literally it's, where it's they're supposed between, to go. I had a personal health care issue uh, a couple of years ago, and I had to I had to go to, uh, be transported to a hospital. I, uh, had I had to go to another hospital, I'm not sure you and I would even be talking right now. I mean, I thought about that personally. I mean, that's that's real. And in terms of strokes or heart attacks, it's minutes that can make the difference of life or death. That's right. That's and, right. And it's almost a cavalier attitude. So the mayor wasn't notified uh, of Atlanta. This is public. Other people were, were shocked and surprised. What? Yeah, as somebody who follows the news pretty closely, uh, I, I, I didn't even know that was even uh, there was even an issue or anything up for a debate there. No. But let's let's stick a little more on. So talk to me, John, about just sort of not necessarily this year, but just over the course of the last four or five years, big things that have come through the legislature that the Urban League has either advocated for. I'm not talking about whether, you know, it turned out the way the Urban League wanted it to or not. I'm just talking about just some key legislation that has come through that that you've seen um, come through that has affected people. I mean, the, you know, the first the first thing we, we were advocating for was the, the raise of the, in the minimum wage. I mean, you know, Georgia's number one for business. Thank God for that. We're all happy about that. But people struggling. You know, you know, you have one of the greatest income inequality, I think Atlanta probably in the entire country. Yeah. When you take a look at the minimum wage, people say, Well, John, you know, you know, what are you talking about that for? You know, most people don't know that the official minimum wage in Georgia is a little over five dollars an hour. And that's not the feds. I'm talking about the official minimum wage for the state of Georgia is over a little over five dollars an hour. And so, you know, nobody can live you know, on 10, 15, you know, listen, you're hard pressed to live on $20 an hour. You know, you know, the Atlanta Regional Commission has said for a family of three, if you're not earning about $30 an hour, two things are happening. Either you're working two jobs to make ends meet or you're having a real hard time. But in, in the end, what, the, what we couldn't do legislatively, the market had to do uh, because of the great resignation. So, you know, there were pressures to raise the minimum wage. But why do we have to go through that? So that's one thing that we ad- advocated for. Two, we have a literacy rate problem uh, in, this, in, in our state. Uh, our kids, our kids are not reading on third grade levels. I mean, I mean, in mass, in, yeah. in huge numbers. So we tried to create a mandatory kindergarten program for a small amount of money, so that all of our children would have access to a uh, to kindergarten. I, I'm a Head Start baby, class of 1972. Thank you very much. Yeah. But Head Start changed my life. It helped me. You know, and, and why not give that opportunity to, to a lot of parents that are certainly struggling to do that? So those are two things that we had worked on. I'm very proud. Unfortunately, uh, Senate Bill 202 
which was as egregious in terms of, you know, limiting access to, you know, ballot boxes and, you know, you know all, the goofy, all the goofy stuff. You know, if I hand you a bottle of water, it's a, it can be a misdemeanor of, you know, you know, all that crazy stuff that went on. But, uh, you know, we've spent a lot of time at the state capitol now really talking to legislators and advocating um, as advocates, uh, you know, progressive uh, legislation. And those are the two that really come to mind, raising the minimum wage and expanding kindergarten for our kids here, here in our state. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I uh, so when you mentioned just the, the reading levels, uh, one of the things, and, and for those listening, uh, we'll put this in the notes, but you can go to the National Urban League site and get the um, the State of Black America report. There's also a special website set up for stateofblackamerica.com to get the report. One of the things that I looked at in the report was the home ownership rates for Blacks in the United States sits right now at 43 percent. In 1969, a year after the housing, uh, the 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 uh, housing bill was signed by um, President Johnson. President Johnson it was 41 percent. <laughs> so we moved two percent. It moved just a little bit in that time. As we know, housing ties into education. It ties into generational wealth and what have you. What are things that should what so when we talk about what's at stake to tie it back into the midterms, knowing that your house will be a tie to your education, tied to the quality of air you 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 breathe, quality of health care that you can access, building generational wealth, what are sort of legislative things that could be introduced if we had a more progressive Congress and Senate? After uh, after November eighth, I think you know uh, almost with, the, with you know with the president. And this is nonpartisan, but you know when, when you took a look at the the Build Back Better program that the president was you know trying you know there was a huge piece uh, in terms of housing. You know, hey, listen, it's a two pronged approach. One, we have to ensure that we have affordable housing for our people. You know, a lot of people are being squeezed right now nationally. You know, just average you know average working class people who need a place to raise their children. But we also want to make sure that people that they progress and that they have a chance to, to purchase homes. It was during the Clinton, Clinton administration, if you remember, where that was the greatest explosion of home ownership. Yep. You know, in terms of African Americans really being able to purchase their homes through access, you know, you know, access to capital and, and 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 good stuff like that. So, to answer your question directly, I think we have to make sure that we have progressive policies to really. Um, open the door for more people in terms of low down payment and making sure that we're keeping predatory lenders, you know, at bay, making sure that, you know, you know, you know, it's a, you know, it's not so restrictive. Listen, home ownership is a win-win for everybody. Everybody wins when a person owns a home. Everybody, everybody wins taxpayers. You know, you have a place for your kids, you can build generational wealth. So let's work hard to make sure we have progressive uh, policies to uh, to have uh, to have our kids and, and our, the next generation being able to purchase homes, and that's important. I mean, my kids are in their twenties now. Some uh, one who's married, and they're looking. Quite frankly, you know. Yeah. So you mentioned Build Back Better, which uh, and then we recently had passed the Inflation Reduction Act. The initial thought uh, with Build Back Better was a lot bigger. It covered a lot more in terms of environmentalism. It covered a lot more in terms of infrastructure. And through 
I, <laughs> through just the whittling down of actually doing the, the right thing, we do have some good legislation, but at the same time, I'm not sure that it's enough. And one of the things that brings that to mind for me, both in terms of climate, infrastructure, voting, <laughs> and who controls the pen and who controls the purse strings is the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. And I know you're here in Georgia and you focus on what's happening here legislatively and nationally. But when we see that the water crisis is due to heavy rains, flooding the Pearl River, overwhelming water treatment infrastructure that hasn't been upgraded since the early 70s. Just first off, what's your, again, back to you, just, 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 just brother, what's your visceral reaction to that? And then what's your sort of, as a, as a person who deals in legislation, what is your reaction to that? Well, first of all, let me just say, we, we've had a chance to talk to President uh, Espy, uh, President Portia Espy is the president of the Mississippi Urban League. Okay. So we have, a, we have, a, a, you know, to, to talk to, talk to her and about how they, how they're certainly meeting the, you know, the challenges of, uh, of our people. I think what Mississippi, with the water crisis, it's a, it's a multi-pronged issue. One, the Earth is struggling environmentally right now. Let's be clear: what's going, what, you know, in terms of melting ice caps and uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, changing weather uh, weather patterns. Uh, global warming is real. That's number one. Number two, the next crisis, uh, and you can quote me on this, is going to be a water crisis for fresh water for drinking water. That's the next crisis. Yes, it's not oil; it's fresh drinking water right now. That's the next crisis that's coming, and some might argue that, that might be here in terms of take a look at what's going on in terms of of water issues right now, and access to access to to water. Third, for us as as people as African Americans, it's environmental issues. I mean, if you think, and, and I and I heard, I listened to the mayor. I mean, I, I think that you know what, what got me was the image of a water truck in front of the governor's mansion. Yeah, in Jacksonville, and it's not this. This is an issue that's just been here. This this has been an issue that's gone ongoing. Why? Because similar to Georgia, there's been a concerted effort not to invest money in terms of infrastructure, where there happens to be a large concentration of communities of people of color. The same thing in Flint, Michigan. The same exact thing. Same exact. Mm -hmm. That's a policy making decision, and shame on them. Shame on them. Shame on them. And that's, it, you know, listen, that is that's certainly not treating all citizens equally. And having just been over there, it's one thing for, you know, good hearted people to, you know, hearts to break and say, let's do something about this and send a lot of water and water pressures back working and they've taken away the boil alert. But there hasn't been anything in terms of talking about what's the long term solution for this? What's the infrastructure problem? And I, I always say that for an advanced country, a wealthy country, I just do not see the French legislature seeing people in another city far away from Paris drinking contaminated water and not saying this is a national crisis. I don't know what happens in the French parliament, but somehow I just don't see that. I don't see the Japanese parliament <laughs> saying, you know, it's okay for us to be good here in Tokyo, but out in other places. I, I, th that is something that is uniquely American and unique to this time of this, um, because the thing is, is sort of this anti-government rhetoric that 
democracy, this threat to democracy has very real implications. It's one thing to say there's a water crisis in Jackson, but it's in Baltimore. It already happened in Flint. And like you said, it's access to water. California and Arizona right now are fighting about access to the Colorado River. I mean, these things are... are which, is, which, by the way, is, is water levels are decreasing. Are decreasing. So we're talking about access to the water source that is actually decreasing. And so back to the title of uh, Under Siege, the threat to democracy, it is very real. And I'm really hoping that people, you know, through our conversation and other conversations that are happening, understand that there is a lot at stake. That is not what's happening in Jackson. It may be an event, but the idea that we got here is a series of policy decisions and indecisions and who is making those decisions. So anyway, I will, I will, I will move from there because we, you know, we're in the interest of time. We'll move, move on a little bit. John, what brought you to this work? What's your journey? How did you get here? My journey was, it was 1980. I was 13 years old. And my teacher at the time asked us eighth graders or whatever it was to follow the presidential election that year. And I remember as thirteen years, thirteen-year-old kid in New York City, looking at Jimmy Carter on television that year, and Ted Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talking about uh, in Madison Square Garden, talking about uh, about the future of this country, and I never looked back. I just started. Um, I knew at that moment, as as crazy as that sounds, is I wanted to be in public public life, public service, and I've spent my entire career uh, in public service. But by the time I was twenty-two, I I was working for a guy by the name of Mario Cuomo, the 54th governor of the state of New York in Albany, working for the governor Cuomo uh, as, as an appointment so a secretary to the governor. And now I find myself here at this point in my career fighting a good fight on behalf of the people of our great state here in Georgia. So it's been a tremendous privilege and honor to serve. And I'm just happy to be here. What's what's been so, you know, in dealing with this work and you uh, listen, there's one thing to be neutral in terms of political parties and what have you. I, the one thing that I know is that you are not neutral on the well-being of Black folks. So let me say that just out, out, out the gate. Talk to me about something that's been most satisfying in doing this work uh, in your career. You know, let me, say, let me say this. You know, this is the first time in my career that I've ever worked for a nonprofit. I've served on boards of nonprofits. And I remember a couple of years ago, uh, my, my father, he passed away a year ago from COVID, unfortunately. Mm. But I remember my father called me one day. He said, you know, John, how's the job? I said, you know, Dad, I said, it's funny. So this is the first time in my career. This isn't even a job. So what are you talking about? I said, it's like a ministry. Mark, I tell you the truth, because you're on the ground every day. And in this job, you know, it, you're really having a serious impact you know, you, you can get a call from a, a, a person sleeping in their car with their kids, and, and, and that's happened. You can get a person, a call of a person who's unemployed or a person who's sick or a person who's been evicted or with housing or, or their kids are in trouble, and, 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 I've, and I've received those calls. And when you come back a year from now, you see that kid, you know, and they say, hey, Mr. John, I'm okay. You know, I mean, it, it, even now, it, it gets me, you know, that ours is a charge to keep. We listen, Mark. If we don't, if this is whatever you want to call it. If we don't help our people, who's going to do it? Yeah, no doubt. Who? You, me, we are the talented tenth. God has blessed us, and we have to help. We have to help our people. So for me, that's been the most rewarding 
to be able to help our help our folks in small ways and to make their lives a little bit better. Yeah. Now, so I'm in the talented 20th, but you are in the talented 10th. So, but I'm going to no, do everything that I can. I'm going to do everything that I can while I can. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, but to that, to that end, I do want to uh, thank you for that. And I do want to say just to everybody listening, there is no, they, that is going to do the, this work. There's no, no. The, it, it's got to be us and, and all of us. And there's so many ways to plug in. I would again urge people to go to the National Urban League site and to the stateofblackamerica.com and you will see all manner of statistics that where it shows some progress and but deep inequities, deep structural inequities, uh, you know, in education and social justice and housing and health and a lot of things. Progress is not victory. Progress is not victory. I mean, the, 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 the Black National Anthem is two victory is one, but it's right. not going to be, you know, it's, there's not going to be a cloud come from the sky and there's just, you know, soldiers. The, Cal- the Calvary ain't coming, brother. It's no, me and you. We, we, we are it. Uh, so, so, so that's that. All right. Well, well, John, listen, we're going to thank you. But before we let you go, I want to ask you a, a, a couple of questions. Sure. First off, what does it mean to live well? To live well is to be is to be loved, is to to be healthy, to be centered, and to and to believe in a cause that's greater than just yourself. For me, that's what it means to be to live well. You know, I I don't want I would, I would be remiss in this. Of, I want to go before I go to the to the last part. You said your dad passed of COVID during the the pandemic. As someone who is steeped in this work and just having, you know, uh, having a loss like that, and, and and I don't know what it was like in terms of making arrangements, but, you know, everybody's had, I've seen people, you know, have to put funerals together or do them virtually or what have you, and I'm necessarily want to go through that, but how do you sort of maintain your, your sanity or your peace in doing this work? Because, listen, you look great. <laughs> you got on the nice tie. You nice suit. You don't have your tie today, but you know what have you. This is hard work. What do you do to sort of keep your your peace or stay in the fight? I'll be I'll be honest with you, just being candid with, because it wasn't just me. It was a million people who lost somebody. It, it, it was probably the most challenging time of my life. To be very candid with you, to lose my father in the way that I lost my father, and it was something that uh, something that you know. You couldn't script. It was everything from you have to go say goodbye to he was in an ICU wing. I had to. I only had five minutes to go in. I had to go in with a hazmat suit. And you had to figure out how are you going to make those final arrangements. It was brutal, to be very honest with you. But and even now in, in this work, it can it can be tough. You know, you you come home and sometimes you're exhausted. But two things. One, I I'm a deeply uh, faithful person. I know that God for me. There is a God, and He's real, and that gets me through each and every day. Yeah. The second thing is that I, you know, I was raised by my maternal great grandmother, who left South Carolina back in the 1930s, and I say, you know, under the most oppressive conditions for our people, and if that generation could could, could make it through, then by God's grace, I can do I can do so as well. So you have to take time for your mental. You have to take your days off. Yeah. You have to go uh, spend time with your family, or you have to read a book, or fish, or swim, or 
and then pray up and then get rested and then come back to fight the good fight another day. But you do have to take care of yourself. You do. Because the, the, it's real, Mark. It's real. Honest to God, it is. Yeah, no, it's 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 real. And listen, I will say to 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 equally share is that we did last season, we did twenty seven or eight episodes, and you know, it's this type of information and content. And by the end of it, I needed a break because it's just a lot to to take in. But one of the things that I want to say uh, before we move on to something lighter is. You know, when we talk about the state of the country and the state of democracy and all of those things, I think one of the things that will come back to bite us, and I, I think it's it's almost sinful, is that during COVID, we discovered a lot of things about the healthcare system. There hasn't been one damn thing anywhere to sort of strengthen it in terms of access to health and healthcare infrastructure. The other thing is we identified during COVID a group of people called essential workers. Yes. There has not been a bill of rights for essential workers. There had no. not been, there was no tax break for essential workers. Like a one time. So it's a, so when I pass by and, and people listening to the show will hear me say this over and over, I am infuriated when I pass by a hospital and it says heroes work here. It's like we identified those people as heroes but we didn't do anything in terms of their daycare, their health care. We didn't do anything to put more money in their pocket. We didn't no. do anything to, nope. in most cases, in a lot of cases, do anything to to supplement the learning loss for those kids who, you know, had to learn in hybrid environments. And I, I think it's I think it's a national blot and I think it's sinful. And I and I mean the word sin. As it sounds for anybody who's like questioning, do you, do you really mean sin? I, I really think that is is sinful. While we're at it, before one more before we move on, we have Governor Kemp versus Stacey Abrams round two. Just participation. Are people paying attention? Do you think, from your perspective? I don't know. It seems to me. I I I, I hope I hope they are. I really do. I I I um I don't want to get myself in trouble, but. Uh... I don't know if they're paying attention. I, I think people are just, uh, it's so much going on right now, but we, but we got to pay attention. We have to pay attention. So John, I, I'm, <laughs> I am somebody as, as the host of Parlay and All Blue, I am, I'm actually, I don't know if I'm nonpartisan or what have you, but I have a damn opinion on it. Listen, if people don't pay attention, <laughs> you, you're going to get the government that you deserve by your participation. Again, one of the things, we didn't get to it, but I looked at the number of black registered voters is 69%, white voters 74%, certainly not equity there, but you know we're, we're moving to 69%. But the participation in the last election was only at 62%. You cannot, we cannot sit home. It is a lot on the line. So- and we changed the world. Yeah. No, listen, we, listen, with 62 percent, we changed the world. We, we, we changed the world and we changed at least the course of history for for the interim with just 62 percent. It is it. not cool to not participate. It is not. And listen, I get it. You don't get everything you want from any administration, whether no. it's your mayoral administration, your gubernatorial president or what have you. It just doesn't all come. But I can tell you this, when you sit home, you are actually yielding to the other side. Amen. You are Amen. yielding to the other side. You are making a vote one way or another. So, right. 
you you got to get out there and get at it. And and hey, Mark, if I can last uh, before we wrap up one, one yeah. thing that I think needs to be said. I think what's going on in this country right now is that some folks believe that you know America is changing in such a way that that perhaps you know they feel as if their their future isn't secure. And, you know, I just disagree with that notion. I think, you know, rising tides lifts all boats. I think, you know, e pluribusunum, that, that's the model of the, the United States. It's Latin, which means out of many one. I think that all of us have to be in this together. And all of us have fears. Everybody, listen, there's not a human being on the planet doesn't have a fear of something. But we just can't just walk away and just say, well, just throw our hands up out of fear that uh, because of Mark. I don't think any of us are smart enough to put it back together. If we break it, seriously, are any of us smart enough to put it back together? No, not any any one of us. And listen, I don't think that. And and I and I think it's not hyperbole at all to say that it does not have to be this way because it's been this way because we've lived in a democracy and we we trying a Republican small lowercase r uh, a republic form of government. It does not have to be this way. It is contingent on our participation. John, just so, so we end on something something light here. You are originally from Queens, New York. And yes. you, you raised your family on Long Island. I and did. so I want to have a sort of musical battle royal between Queens and, and Long Island. But instead of having all of the Queens artists and all of the Long Island artists come... We are going to do it very much in the style of the Iliad of where Hector and Achilles just come and battle it out and whoever wins between those. But we're going to go three rounds and it'll be Long Island versus Queens. And that wow. we're going to go three rounds. Wow. The first one is a Tribe Called Quest from Queens versus EPMD from Long Island. Wow. Okay. A Tribe Called Quest. All right, so we got round one to a tribe called Quest from Queens is round one. Round two, Queens, New York, Run DMC oh. versus Long Island Public Enemy. Oh, really? You're going to get me in trouble? Come on. Listen, I'm, listen, not, I'm, I'm not, not going to get listen, you in listen, trouble. Listen. You're just trying to hear what's happening, listen, brother. Listen, what is listen, happening? I, I got to go with, with Hollis Queens, you know? Come on, man. Oh, you're going with Queens. Okay. Go so, DMC, so, man. All right. So we're going with Ron and DFC. Okay, there we go. So the, the so it's already done in terms of Queens is going to win because it's only three rounds. But I just want to hear it out. I want to hear it out. Queens, New York, Nas, Long Island, Rock him. Oh, wow. I got to go with Nas. So it is a shutout. It's a shutout per John Moyer. No, I can't, I can't go. I can't go. I can't go back. Mark, you know, Listen, you know, it, 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 it's, all, it's recorded and this will live forever in the annals of the Republic. So, like, when, you know, 600 years some archaeologists and anthropologists studied with John Moyer, uh, said, Tribe Called Quest versus EPMD. That's what I kind of thought uh, going in. Run DMC over Public Enemy. Ooh, that's not what I would have done, but this is your, know, you are the guest. And then Nas and Rakim, you pick Nas. I can't be mad at any of that, but boy, listen, when you go 
to Long Island, there are going to be some people that snatch you up like, John, what were you saying? They're going to be waiting for me at the border, Mark. There you go. There you go. John, listen, thank you so much. We know you got so much to do. Everyone else, we appreciate you listening. This is just the first episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Again, go to the National Urban League site, stateofblackamerica.com, and vote, participate. And after you vote, as Tana Hesey Coates says, is that voting is just sort of civic hygiene. If you really want to get healthy, you got to get involved in the school board, county commission, join the Urban League, join something. It doesn't matter, but you got to be in. Thank you so much. And, John, we're out. Thank you, brother. Peace. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.